0: So, well, Merry Christmas, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome if it's your first Sunday. Glad you guys are joining us today. We are in a series in the book of Acts that will take us through next December. So we're still at the very beginning of this fairly long book in the New Testament that essentially tells us the story of the the church. And so we're subtitling it, The Church is Born, because it's a major theme but there's a lot more that goes on, too. We've already been seeing that uh, if you've been here, or if you read it before. And you, you will see more. Even today, you'll, you'll see that there's more. But we're actually kind of right in that part of Acts where the church is, is born. And so, like, last week, the very end of last week's passage, after the first Christian sermon happens and Peter preaches the gospel, 3,000 convert, and boom, the church is born. So Acts is really the story of that. It's the story of the birth of the church, but predicated on and after, so just chronologically, if you're new to all this stuff, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And so uh, at this point in the story, as we read last week, the Holy Spirit has come. And this is the promise of the Father, it's called. So um, part of the the promise is that that God would deliver sinners who, who trusted in him. So he would bless people who had faith. That's the long-standing promise stretching way back into the Old Testament. That's been fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, dying in the place of and for sinners, rising again, overwhelming death, and ascending. So the idea there is he's ascending over all things, even over, to kind of rule over our sin and all the threats against us, even our own hard hearts. But also to kind of embody the fact that only Christ ascends. He's the only one that goes to God, not us. The idea of ascension then is, is can be this religious thing applied to us as, as if it's about ascending, but it's not in the Christian faith. It's about Jesus ascending as a human being who is also the Son of God for us, kind of substitutionarily in our place. And so, but after all of that, the Holy Spirit comes. It's a, it's a part of the promise too is that Christ would fill and the Holy Spirit would fill implied empty uh, vessels, sinful vessels in, in human hearts like, like ours. And so that, that's happened. At this point in the story, as we read last week, the Holy Spirit has come descending on the, the 12 disciples' heads like tongues of fire and enabling them to preach the gospel in languages they formerly did not know. So people hear it, they trust in Jesus through it, and are saved, and bam, the church is born. And so really simply, there's a lot of ways to define the church that it can kind of all complement, but the church, as we've seen in Acts, is just simply a group of people who believe in Jesus. And by believe, I don't mean believe he exists, but I mean... Trust. Belief, belief is like a trust, is trust language. Or faith is like it's active idea in the Bible. So faith means trust, it means believe, it means like cling to for dear life. So the church is a group of people who believe in Jesus in that way, who, who cling. Uh, not trusting in themselves to save themselves, but trusting in Jesus' shed blood to save them from their sins and ultimately from death and eternal separation from God. So that's the church. It's a group of people, not a building, but a group of people who assemble church, Literally, it means assembly, so the assembly of God's people who gather, who are brought together uh, by this gospel. More on that here in a minute. But a couple of things, not to glance over from last week, in fact, I didn't make a big deal this last week, so this is actually kind of new, but um, you may have seen it if you were here. So a couple of things, not to glance over. Uh, one, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they immediately went not to meditate in secret, but they went to where people were. This is really huge. It may be kind of shocking if this is brand new to you or kind of wonder, well, what's Christianity all about? What's kind of the essence? They were not immediately led by the Spirit to meditate in secret or to be alone, but they immediately went out to where they were people. And and they preached the gospel because it was for them and God loved the world. And so he wanted this message to go forth. So there was something to put faith in. And so, not just that though, but when they started preaching, and Peter's a good example of this with this sermon, but all the apostles are, it's implied they're all saying this, but but Peter says, the gospel is for you. It's for you who are, those. actually from Acts 2, he says, for you who are far off. So those who are far off from God, who might feel far away from Jerusalem because they had gathered for Pentecost, traveling many, many miles to be, to be at that place at that point. So far off geographically, but far off spiritually from God. The gospel is for you. It's for you. It's a, it's a, it's a gift. And so that tells us that Jesus didn't just die and rise, but he died and rose for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, and it tells us that although there is a time for private devotion in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit, again, does not move us to seclusion and individualism, but the Holy Spirit moves us to public gathering and public ministry. That's a big deal for, in terms of understanding of the church and our lives as Christians, and if you're not a Christian yet, understand this, the Holy Spirit of God moves people to be around other Christians out into the world, whether it's kind of for evangelistic purposes, but I think this, it's bigger than that. It's for just our lives to be around other Christians and to just really, uh, etymologically from, from the word here, church, to assemble, to be with other Christians and assemble with, with God's people, really, which is really to say to assemble with God because the church is the, the body of Christ. That's a big deal from last week, but it's also a preface to this week. Today, Today's kind of a part two, in a way. So the church was essentially born last week through the first 3,000 converts uh, who believed in Jesus through Peter's sermon. But today, they, they are assembling. And so we're going to read from Acts 2, 42 to 47, and uh, look at this idea of, of being together with the church, quite simply. So only six verses today. Let's start in verse 42. And they, the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, it's a great little passage here. We'll come back to a lot of this. But a quick word on what we call, we've mentioned this in the series a lot already, but the difference between something being prescribed in the Bible, so something to do, something to emulate, and something that's just described narratively. It's not necessarily something to copy. Uh, That can be a hard distinction to make sometimes in the Bible. It's not usually super difficult, but sometimes it can be. Uh, this is a passage that some of you have maybe read before or heard a lot of teaching on. It's probably one of the more famous ones cited, I think, in the book of Acts, and this is my experience, uh, because it's just such a great kind of summative paragraph on, on what church should look like maybe or, or kind of was in the first century. So it's a great little passage on church life, but it's often quoted as paradigmatic for the church for all time, as if it were an example to follow. And, and here's the caution, the broad one. It is and it isn't. It is paradigmatic in some ways, but it's clearly not in other ways. Meaning, we see things here the church has always done, and we do today in our local church. And some of it's just kind of common sense, like the, the teaching and the prayers and communion and things like that were, were being taken. We'll come back to some of that today. So some of it is, yeah, the Bible talks about this stuff elsewhere. It's kind of undergirded. It's taught. It's, it's complemented with some more, more like a prepositional teaching elsewhere. And, and we, we follow suit at, at Hiawatha. But we also see that there are some things that don't happen either often, like miracles. We're going to see miracles happen all the time. It doesn't seem it seems to be implied here that miracles are happening a lot through the hands of the apostles. There are reasons for that. Um, we might not see miracles done seasonally, or just a lot in our lives, or we might not feel like it all. So there's that. But um, we also see things like the the that the early Christians went to the temple, and that's something that we never do. So. You know, people say like, well, this is like this is this is paradigmatic what church would look like. We we have to qualify it, right? And say, well, we don't go to temple though. You know, so the early Christians are all Jewish and they were just going to the temple courts to gather in larger groups because it would have had more space. And so it's not something that we do. So again, we have to caution ourselves, it's not completely paradigmatic uh, for church life for all time. Um, and so it actually, with that said, this is not prescribing a house church model of church either. There were quickly after Pentecost larger in the temple courts and smaller church gatherings in smaller homes, uh, just like today in many churches, and we'd be, we'd be an example of that. Hiawatha, we have larger gatherings like this right now. We have two services on Sundays and about 350 people that call this church home. And we have a lot of smaller expressions of that that occur in different ways in different in homes, actually, almost all the time throughout the week. And that's actually true right away. It's interesting in the first first church. And actually, a lot of homes in the first century, we might picture little huts everywhere that fit like eight people, but there are a lot of homes that had room for dozens or even hundreds of people in the first century. And actually, a good example of that is the upper room. Remember, there are 120 people waiting in the upper room, kind of uh, per Jesus's command to wait and to stick around for the holy spirit and so there is space for 120 there were big areas and so it, it wasn't this is not then this paradigm for house church is best house church is great it can be great the church can obviously exist in very small living rooms and does in many parts around the world but it's not a paradigm it's not saying this is what it has to look like to to be the church if that makes sense so but but here here's the question so a couple of cautions there but here's the questions i want to look at today What aspects of this are prescriptive? What aspects of this are paradigmatic? And what parts of this uh, point us to the gospel? So there there are gospel undercurrents like there almost always are in texts like this, narrative texts like this. And so how is Jesus the hero of a passage like this that, at first glance, you might think, is entirely about the church? It's entirely about people. It's entirely about the how-tos to church. And though that is a part of it, it's actually not the main part. It's not the main point. This is more about Jesus than it is us, and we'll, we'll kind of crescendo to that. So I want this passage to be kind of a, especially for those of you who are Christians, whether you're, you're calling this local church home or not, because you might have a different local church and you're just visiting, I want this to kind of confront us in a very invitational, uh, helpful way on what is the church, and what should we be devoting ourselves to? What should we be saying yes to or no to? So I want, I want to start there, but then kind of move into this, but What's our motivation to do that kind of question? And um, what compels us un- unto that end? And where is Jesus here? How is he sort of, how's the shadow of him present in passages even like this that, again, at first glance might seem entirely about people? All right, so that's kind of where we're headed. Let's start then by answering, the, answering this question. I have three things. If you want to follow along in that sermon insert, pull it out uh, if you're a note taker. Uh, but three big things here. Not, it's not exhaustive, but three main things. The, the first is, So what is paradigmatic? This really cool idea in verse 44, it's very simple but easy to read over, that they were all together. So Verse 44 says, and all who believed were just simply together. Isn't that great? So that is to say that all who believed that Jesus rose from the dead, who believed that he died for, remember that key phrase, for them. So these are all people who believed that it was not just an event historically, but it was theologically Uh, relevant. It it was a gift for them. It happened, God did all that for people, sinners like us. So we're, we're the beneficiaries. So people believe that for the forgiveness of their sins, all who trusted in this act of God to save them were together. So it's really fascinating. It's interesting, but I think also theologically and practically helpful when you kind of think, think about the opposite. Like what if they would just have gotten baptized and gone home? You know, heard the gospel, gotten baptized, and just left the city and gone home, you know? I, mean, I guess that could have happened, but it just so didn't, right? And there's logistical reasons for that, but I think they're, more importantly than that, there are theological ones. These people weren't from here, but they were gathering in this city. The first church was in Jerusalem before it was kind of dispersed out from there, and that's what the rest of Acts will kind of be about. But why didn't they just get baptized and go home? You guys ever wonder that? The early church clearly, instinctually, didn't have a just me and Jesus mentality or spirituality. The early church instinctually didn't have a I don't need the church way of thinking. They so didn't. That's very American, but it's not ancient or Christian. So if you've ever had kind of like a a beef or a concern with the way like Americans do church, um and you want to get back to like the acts 2 church this is a great way to think about the acts 2 churches just being with other christians you know so if you ever experienced church that's not that like doesn't value being together which is kind of it's almost sort of a misnomer because how do you like do church and never be your own christians but if it's like not valuing it actively you know then i think that's something to say hey we can do better than this we can get back to the way it's supposed to be and part of that is just simply being being together and so that's what we see, the opposite of then not being together, what the gospel does. The gospel draws us in. It draws us away from ourselves to be with Christ and his people. And so, so think about it this way. If, if, we're, if we read this book and, and we come to terms with what the problem is in the world, what, what it's saying the big issue is that God has to overcome. So what is sin and what's the problem? And if we end up reading that, that we're, actually we're the problem, like us, We're the biggest problem with the world, and we're the biggest threat to our salvation. Not just some notion of not doing enough good things, but if our propensity to worship ourselves is the problem, then it would make sense that when we're saved, we'd be drawn away from ourselves, and on a weekly basis, or sometimes more, drawn away from our actual physical homes, and on a a more macro scale, away from our past lives as we repent, to be with Jesus and his people. And it's exactly what we see here. The doctrine of the church in a strange kind of indirect way reveals to us what our greatest problem is. And that is too much of us. So so gathering with the church, being drawn away from ourselves, away from too much individualism, too much uh, internalization of of lies and bad theology and self-worship and our lives just being all about us, Jesus dies for that. He dies for us, but also to save us from ourselves, our kind of self-idolatry and self-glory. But he also now starts to undo that whole thing, practically, in our lives, through us now being together with other Christians. And, of course, him through them. So, so practically speaking, then, for a minute, uh, the, and this, I know, kind of goes without saying, but it was super helpful for me to think about this this week. The, the early Jerusalem church didn't have a lot of programs, right? There, were, there was no Awana or any, we don't have Awana, but there was no big programs in the early, there was no men's ministry, there was no women's ministry. There's nothing like that. There was just like, there was just the church. Not that those are bad things. This is still like, it's still early here. And you could say that community groups kind of existed because there were smaller expressions of like the larger kind of uh, temple court gathering group that happened on a, on a regular basis. But other than that, there's just not a lot of programs. Nor was it the apostle's job to help people make friendships. That was not their job, you know? These, these people were willfully choosing to be here, hanging out with people who might otherwise be their enemies. More on that in a minute. But what I, what I mean by all this here is, to take notice of this, it just takes a choice. We talk about, like, we'll talk about fellowship here more in a minute, but we think about community and being together with other Christians. It just takes a choice and a recognition that it's important and a part of our salvation experience and that it doesn't have to be neat and tidy and perfect relationally to be real and sweet and right at the heart of God. We'll come back to that. That's the first piece here is not to read over. What's paradigmatic? All who believed, all, not 99%, all, all who believed were together, saw the value of this, knew that this just instinctually, even though it wasn't even part of Peter's sermon, presumably, they just saw that this was an instinctual uh, thing and should be for us as well. The second piece is, so again, the question, what's paradigmatic? The second thing is they, what they do to get together, is they devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So it's kind of a great summative thing there that a lot of people look at. In fact, the last time I preached this a few years ago, um, basically broke the sermon down with those four things. I'm not going to do that today, at least as um, systematically. I'm going to do it a little bit here in a minute. But um, I have a fifth thing that I want to spend more time on. We'll look at generosity here in a little bit. But this, this um, this though, is great. So for 42, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. <clears throat> so a couple of things. First note the word devoted. It's a great word. It means Gave themselves over to these things continually. Gave themselves over to these things continually. And so, um, again, if you're a Christian today, especially those of you who call Hiawatha home, think about this. Let this sort of be a mirror. And sometimes it's just best not to overcomplicate these things. And and like I started, I I want this to be in part, not for us just individually, but as as a kind of a, a corporate community here. Think about this. What is this saying to us? Do we do this? Do we devote ourselves to these four things? And by devote, it means, again, giving ourselves over to them all the time, continually and regularly. Or how can we devote ourselves to these things more? So consider it kind of an invitation to think about this on this principle-based level. What is it saying to us as a church? Us, not just individuals, but us as as a community. So to walk us through that, I want to just look at these from these four angles. It's saying the same thing, but with a little bit different language. The early church was word-centered, community-centered, communion-centered, and prayer-centered. So a few quick things on, on these four. First, the word-centeredness, which uh, for some of you, this is the most obvious. For others of you, uh, this really needs to be underlined. I think this is, when we talk about being apostolic, talk about being Acts 2, uh, especially in the Western world, the Western church these days, I think this is, the, this is one of the bigger deals. This is, I mean, teaching, preaching proclamation, instruction of various kinds in the church, or think about evangelism, which is, which is almost always word-based or should be, or think about it on this level, encouragement or reading, reading the Bible with other people or, or by yourself. All that and more matters, and all that can be under the category of kind of a word-centeredness in how spirituality looked in, in community. And we saw last week, and this goes back to the apostolic idea and what we, what we need to reclaim. And I'm speaking we as in kind of the big sort of uh, global but maybe western church. Um, or just a helpful reminder for us. Because this is a value we have at Hiawatha without question. It's been around for like two weeks, you've probably seen this. But a huge value, but something we can even, we can always, always devote ourselves to even more. But as we saw last week with Peter's sermon, the nature of teaching in the Bible, uh, or in, in the early church, is Bible-saturated, G, always Jesus-centered, Remember how we used the Old Testament and, and made a beeline to that, to that passage, with, uh, to Christ with that passage? Jesus-centered and grace-focused. So Bible-saturated, Jesus-centered, and grace-focused. And, and it continued after Peter's first sermon. And, so, and it was robust. So this wasn't a 10-minute homily about, you know, uh, someone's, some pastor saying, yeah, you know what, I woke up and I saw God in the sunrise today. Let's pray. You know, or something like that, like lame like that. It, it was robust. It was open Bibles, uh, drilling deep into the Old Testament and dr- making a, drawing a, a straight, making a beeline, a straight line from that text to not just the man Christ, but what he did for us on the cross and through the empty tomb. So it, it is robust, open bibled, gospel-centered, grace-focused, making Jesus the hero, preaching and proclamation and teaching, whether it's formal or informal. And again, it continued after Peter's first sermon. So that's huge as well, because clearly teaching has this huge ongoing role in the building up of the church. Um, teaching and preaching isn't, isn't dead. Like, it's, it's, it was continuing here, not just for conversion, but for the building up and maturing of other Christians. And so Christians keep devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and putting them in a space where they can continue to hear God, God's word sort of wash over them, and God speak to them through these first pastors, essentially. Words matter. At the end of the day, words matter and should for the Christians if we want to be like this church, and if we don't, we can just ditch words, but if we want to be like an Acts 2 church, we should care deeply about continuing to hear from God through the Bible, through various forms of teaching and preaching and encouragement and Bible reading on a regular basis, devoting, giving ourselves over to that continually. All right, so word center is the first one. Community centered uh, or fellowship centered. We talked about this, but I'll say again, so important here that the people didn't just sort of value community or fellowship, but they devoted themselves to it. They gave themselves over to it continually. They made intentional, regular efforts to be together with other Christians for the sake of their encouragement. And again, I mentioned this before too, but it doesn't say they were best friends necessarily. Most of them just met, so they couldn't have been. But they were together anyway, eating, eating a lot actually, learning and praising God. They were together nonetheless to do those things. They were together, they were eating, they were learning, they were giving to each other, they were praising God. And so sometimes the way people can think about a church today, and if this, if this is you, then allow this to kind of just gently correct The way you think, if it's a reminder, great. If it's for the first time, that's great as well. But the the way that sometimes people can think about church is, if my best friends aren't at the church, or if I can't make friends in the first six months, I'm out. But but that is, um, that's actually a selfish way of thinking first, but secondly, it misses the point of church. The church is a family more than a group of friends who are exactly like you. The church is a family more than a group of friends who are exactly like you. This is just what we see in the Bible. Like it's not, actually I was reading a, something came through my feed up here, or it's a tweet, I don't know what it was, it was something, some tweet or post or whatever you call these things, But um, where he said, and I'll paraphrase him, but he was saying this morning that the, the question we can sometimes come to church with is, is this church worthy of my attendance? So when we're church shopping, we can think, are they offering me enough? Is it worthy of me being here? We might not actually say that because it sounds so like self-glorifying, but that's kind of the, the motivation sometimes to church shopping. And there's obviously reasons to, to leave churches, to not put down roots at churches. Please hear that. But, but sometimes we come in with, uh, is this church, I'm going to give this church a second or third chance to see if it's worthy of me being here. Versus the idea of saying, I've been called here to love others who are very different from me. And the opportunity there is much richer because we talk about gospel drama sometimes uh, here, the Bible does. We we talk about the gospel being this reality that God, who is different from us, loved us. We are not like him. We are other to him, right? And so, and like like Jesus says, the, the world loves people who love them back, who loves people who are identical to them or loves them back, but what about loving people who hate you? Because that's the kind of love he has for us. Jesus' love is, we're not lovable. We're not worthy of love, but we're enemies to him. But he loved us anyway. And then he says, live that way or have that kind of love because with that kind of love, you will say something beautiful about my character. You'll embody the, the, the bullseye of the gospel, which is enemy love. Not love of lovable people who deserve it, but enemies who don't deserve it. That's us. We're the enemies of God who God has said, you know what, I still love you, and you're still worthy of me giving up my one and only son to bleed and die on a cross among criminals. That's how much God loves you guys. And so that type of generosity, that type of grace, that type of goodness at the the heart of the character of God, that distinction between him being different from us and loving in that way, that can be imaged much more richly and beautifully if we're around people who are different from us, even people we might consider enemies. Or we just don't get along with, or outside the context of Christ, we'd kill each other for just being so different, or valuing things just different politically, or totally different worldviews outside of Christ, totally different worldviews, and we just beat each other's throats. But in Christ, we have love for each other, and we can dramatize then the core of the gospel better than if we are just uh, best friends, like five of us in the living room. Like that's, I mean... That's parachurch, actually. Um, that's not bad. I, I was a part of a crew. It's called crew now. It was something different when I was in college, but it doesn't matter. Uh, crew for four years. Um, any you guys do parachurch ever? If you get college students now or uh, in the past, some of you guys? Um, parachurch is, so para, first of all, means, means alongside. So parachurch is not trying to be the church. Um, but they're trying to kind of come alongside the church evangelistically. But um, in, in any case, when I was in college, parachurch was really, really good. But it was basically me being around people who were exactly like me. You know, we are all in college. We were all there for kind of the same reason to learn. We had a ton of time, <laughs> ton of time. We thought, you know, we thought we were busy then. But anyway, ton of time, we, and we are all identical. Like we are all, we look similar in some ways. Um, you know, we are all a lot of from the Midwest, and um, I could go on. But. I was at the U of M here. It was, it was actually really, really sweet. And, and, the, and God's grace was just rich in that for me. And I, I would do it again a hundred times over. But with that said, it wasn't church. And if you're, if you're in a campus group now or you were or you're in high school, you're going to head into that, I'd encourage you to do it. But just understand, uh, college ministry is not real life. It's not real life. Like you won't have all what I just said there about just being a lot like people You will never have that again in your life. And that's actually a good thing. It's not bad, but it's good to move on from that and be actually extremely diverse towards other people in a community like this because, again, about what it can say about the gospel. And this is the reality. We're all very different. Different ages, different backgrounds, different minor theological perspectives, different uh, political beliefs, different hobbies. Very, very different. The gospel can, can and does unify that, but if you're looking for parachurch in the local church, one, you'll never find it, and two, I think you'll, you'll be settling. And so, um, again, pursue it, but just have the right perspective that it's for a time, it's not meant to really be the church, and um, there's, there's just a better way out there. So, all right, that's a sidebar. We'll come back here. So, word-centered and community-centered. Third is communion-centered. So, uh, this phrase probably means full meals when it says breaking of bread it probably means full meals during which communion was taken. So if it does, then it means Christians ate a lot of full meals together. It was like not Thanksgiving every day necessarily, but it was you know, kind of like that. There was meals all the time together. And then there was bread and wine on the table that they used to particularly remember Jesus' blood and body through that bread and wine as, as he commanded us. And this was the command of Christ. So basically these people are making good on Jesus' command. You know, Jesus said, we, we talk about that, or if, if you want that, that's a good thing. What did Jesus command you to do? One of the big ones is love. We talked about enemy love. Another, probably like top of the list, actually, or right underneath love, I actually put it right next to it, is take communion. What did Christ command us to do is eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of his death, to like proclaim it, to commemorate it, to centralize it, and put it at the top. So kind of by, by, way, by way of which then we, we basically kind of put ourselves in this spot where, where we'd be reminded of what the center of the gospel is but protected from, from what it isn't. So Jesus said, eat my body and drink my blood and proclaim my death until I return. So the early church is actually really weird from day one. You know? and, and actually this has already happened. In John 6, Jesus is teaching people and he's saying, Actually, guys, if you don't drink my blood and eat my body, you have no part with me. And that's when like half the people said, "Dude, that's cannibalism. I'm out." You know, and they and they leave. Uh, That actually sort of spills forward then into the practice of the church, where Jesus says, "No, I'm I'm doubling down on that. I'm saying this is what it means to be a Christian. You take communion. You do it together with other Christians. You you eat bread. You drink wine. You let that be weird." And a lot of, actually in the first century, and this is probably already starting to happen a little bit, but especially a couple of decades from this point, the, the Roman culture, so just other, other cult, predominantly the Roman culture, but the Roman culture, they're looking at Christians and they're actually like, man, these guys are cannibals. And they also thought they were incestuous because they called themselves brothers and sisters all the time. And they had these things called love feasts, which were like, um, like it, like an idiom for uh, their worship gatherings, basically, it was just like another. We're going to call our gatherings love feast because we eat food and we talk about the love of God. Let's call and we love each other. Let's call it the love feast, and they're calling each other brothers and sisters, and they're eating eating bodies and drinking blood metaphorically speaking. So, the early like the world around them was looking at that and saying, they're like a bunch of incestuous cannibals. Like this is insane, you know. And and I think that's really good for us to remember because. When we let Christianity be weird, because if the center of Christianity was palatable, like just do enough good and abstain from enough bad, that's palatable, but it's overly simplified moralism. It wouldn't have been weird and offensive and worthy of killing them over. And it wouldn't have been as centered on Jesus. So if if we want a list of commandments, Jesus is like on the menu, but he's not the menu. He's like one of about 80 million options we can choose from. Yeah, but... You know, my dad said do that, or the Jewish rabbi down the, uh, the road said that, or this Muslim guy says that, right? My cousins are all Mormons. They say the same thing. It's not different. But what is different is communion. What is different is cross-centeredness, blood-centeredness. See, what, what communion tells us is the center of the faith is not law-keeping, but blood-spilling. And not just a conversion, but every day. Christ does not say, eat the law, eat commandments, eat morality. He says, eat my body. So the center of the faith is Jesus' death and resurrection. It is not about doing good works. That's not the center. In fact, we need to be saved from doing good works apart from him. Now, we still do tons of good. That's an outflow of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, principally love but it's not the center because the, the menu, the, the table settings never change here for the Christian, right? The table settings never change. The wine never comes off and is replaced by the Ten Commandments. The bread never comes off and is replaced by something else to do. The the, the the table settings all the same. The repetition there is huge. So every week when we come back, right? It's whatever's happened, however far we've distanced ourselves or feel like we have from God, no matter what we've done, no matter how much we've sinned. The answer is still the same. Jesus has died for our sins. Nourish yourself on the fact that he's died for your sins. And that's what the early church was repeatedly doing. Even though they were misunderstood for being incestuous, even though they were misunderstood for being cannibalistic, they weren't, of course. But that's that's what they were misunderstood as. Because that meal, I mean, to a world that knows nothing about the gospel, that's just freaky weird. But let it be weird. Let it be weird. Because when it's weird, it's centered on Jesus. If it's palatable and not weird, it's probably oversimplified moralism. But if it's not palatable, then it's probably uh, too much Jesus, you know, and too little us. That's a good thing people kind of just be confronted with and get all weirded out over before they become Christians. All right, then finally, prayer-centered. They were a community of deep-seated dependence on God for everything, just like they were for salvation. I'm not going to talk about this too much today because... um, We have a future sermon in Acts where where prayers are written out. And so we'll talk later in Acts about how they prayed, the content of their prayer, what they didn't pray. So we have a lot of time in Acts to come back to this, so I'm going to skip over this one today. Other than just to say they were a a community of deep-seated trust and dependence on God for everything, for salvation and for loaves of bread. Remember it said they, they they received their food with generous hearts. They receive food like as though it were a gift, right? So those are on the same level, like being saved from your sins and having a loaf of bread or water. They're saying both from God. God's constantly giving, but they're on, they're on different uh, levels. But they're thankful for both. So the gospel made them thankful as well. Not just with communion principally, but also for the whole meal. All right, so they're a prayer center too. So what I want to do now, though, is move into this third section it's kind of a fifth thing on that list, uh, if you're kind of following along and taking notes, um, but it's, it's also its own section, I think, It's uh, because this is not within that list so much as it is kind of sprinkled throughout the six verses. And so again, the question being what's paradigmatic and where's the gospel here in this section of Acts 2, uh, one of the answers is they had generosity towards each other. So a big question off of, this, off of this point is what compelled the early Christians to be so radically generous towards one another, to sell a lot of their stuff and pull the money and, and give a lot of that money to, to other people? Why is this such a focus? Ever wondered that, reading this passage before? It's pretty crazy radical. And it wasn't obligatory or forced. Like, it never says it was obligatory. It's never part of Peter's sermon. You know, to say that, okay, guys, this is what it means now to, to live as a Christian. You have to do this. Not that it would have been wrong uh, to sort of encourage along those levels, but it's not. So it begs the question even more, where is this coming from? When they said, what should we do? Peter said, repent, believe, be baptized. And basically, baptism was linked with joining the church. And so bas- that was it. Receive the grace of God. Be forgiven your sins. But he doesn't talk about this kind of generosity. So it begs the question even more, where is this kind of generosity originating from why is this so instinctual for the church so i have two things here though there's probably more there for sure is but two big things the first is uh, sheer joy so the idea here is that you know i think when i read this passage i can i just see the group basically saying or, or living this way but but saying the tomb is empty let's celebrate I mean, don't you guys, when you read this, get kind of a natural uh, picture of people just being happy? You don't get really get a picture of people. I don't anyway. Like frowning or, or saying, "Oh my gosh, we have to eat again." You know, this is like this is the worst. Or another gift, someone's giving me a gift. Like, oh my gosh, what? We did that yesterday. Like you don't. Know, that's that's like you would you would never do that, right? That that's not the picture you get, even though it's not like labeled. And they were super happy it's implied in the way it's like this literary device almost given over to emphasizing their joy without actually saying it. And so I, so I, know, I know I've said this already but, or implied it, but it's crazy how opposite this is from most other world religions. The Christians here aren't fasting, meditating in solitude, cutting themselves to get close to God and to atone for their own sin, or being overly concerned about a moral code. Early Christians aren't doing anything of that nature or like it. Instead, they're eating all the time. They're gift-giving all the time. They're laughing. They're partying. They're worshiping together. They're reading. They're thanking God and praising Him all the time. Oh, and then throw in some miraculous healing now and then. I mean, it was, that's the type of, not that it's happening on the same level every day they're getting together, but that's basically what we have in the early church kind of going forward. That's how it's described. And that, I think, that the distinction between those two ways of thinking religiously, that the the point there is to remind us that we're saved by a generous God who loves to give to us. In other words, by his grace, not by our works or by religious effort. And, and the generosity here of these people is not, it's not poverty theology either. So it's not, the point of this, like Peter's not saying this, and they're not, this isn't implied. It's not saying, hey guys, now that you're Christians, it's wrong to have stuff. So sell it, give it all away, and in that way, be a true Christian. There, there are still, and we know this from the rest of the New Testament, there are rich and poor Christians after this. This is not like when all you know, wealth is completely redistributed or something into, like, this perfectly fair environment. Like, there is a striving after, uh, caring for the poor Christians without question, but there are still people who would be considered rich Christians. So you see them addressed in Paul's letters and so forth. And so this wasn't obligatory. It wasn't commanded. It was just, and it wasn't, it's not poverty theology. It's not saying it's wrong to not be poor and that poor people are closer to God. It's not saying anything like that at all. These people just wanted to give their stuff away. It's clear. It says this, this is they're not they're they're compelled in a way because of God's love. They're moved because God had given them so much. God had been so radically, He's been so radically unstingy with Him. God had with them that they were expressing that to others out of joy. It was like Christmas every day, uh, basically. Um, there for them and they had that joy and they wanted to give because it was happier to give than to receive. Like Jesus says, it's better to give than to receive. It was happier to give because giving's at the core of God, not receiving. Because God doesn't receive from us, he just gives to us. And so when we tap into that, when we give, that's why it's happier to give. You ever wonder that? I mean, as Christians, we should have an answer for this. If you're not a Christian yet, this is partly why this is true in your life as well. That it's happier to give because God is a giver, and you are in his image. You're a little bit like him. Even though you're not a Christian yet even, you're still you're in his image. And so when you give and when that's a happy thing for you, that should point you to where he gave to you when he gave you his son to die on that cross. That's, that's the whole point. Receiving's great too because we receive the gospel, but giving is better, it's more joyous. And the Christians were starting to realize this and they were giving all kinds of stuff away and pooling money and because... The gospel would save them because they were, they were moved by God's generosity. So that moves us in then to the second piece, which is basically just to say, what compelled this type of generosity? The gospel itself. And there are three things off of this, and I'll frame this as in kind of the way as though the people are thinking this. These are my words, but I think this is the spirit of what's going on. The first is people are saying, we have a much better prize now than our earthly stuff. This reminded me of Hebrews 11 where it says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. So the church's joy then over their newfound salvation like loosened their grips on their earthly stuff because they had a better reward. So it's not saying that the Christians became completely reward unfocused. They just shifted their view towards a different kind of reward which was Jesus himself and eternal life in him. It's a better thing. And so then it loosened their grip on smaller, more insignificant things that wouldn't last anyway. Their possessions weren't theirs anymore. They looked at all their stuff and said, actually, this belongs to God, so I can't be too clingy with it anymore. I don't want to be anymore. Their, their stuff didn't define them. It didn't tell them like who they were at the core because they were children of God now. They weren't um, possessors of stuff. And they also, those things, gave them less joy than the gospel itself. So, so, and again, it, it doesn't mean, it's not saying here, nor does it mean that it's wrong to have stuff or money in this life, but this is what it does mean. So hear this. Jesus talks a lot about money, kind of on, on these terms in the gospels. It does mean this. Christians should not love money, nor should they be extremely stingy or selfish with their things. So Christians shouldn't love money or be extremely stingy or selfish with their money or their stuff or their time or whatever you want to fill in that, in that blank. It's in, and the reason is, it's inconsistent with the belief that we have eternal riches and inheritance stored up for us in Christ. So, in other words, and practically and specifically, there's an inconsistency between having trouble loaning a lawnmower to someone at church because we're worried about wear and tear... We, don't, we, we want to use the lawnmower when it's working really well, so we're, we're going to be stingy with that. There's an inconsistency between that and the idea, the reality, that God did not withhold His one and only Son, but gave Him up for us all. There's just a flat-out inconsistency there, no matter how you slice it. If we're stingy with this pathetic little small engine, you know, but God didn't withhold His one and only Son, but gave Him up for you, like gave Him up to be crucified, unjustly, horrifically, he gave him up. That's the core of the gospel, and so the early Christians are—they're almost instinctually doing this. Like it's—it's it's right to teach on this and connect these dots, like we're doing now. This is helpful, but there's also can be this instinctualness to like how we move from believing in that gospel of God not being stingy but giving His Son for us to like, you know, what I can loosen my grip on my—I'm just saying lawnmower, but whatever. You know, it's not even grassy anymore, but snowblower. On my snowblower. So, um, like, that, there's, there's an inconsistency there between the two. That, that's at least the danger. So it's not wrong. It's, having the stuff's not wrong, but the love of money, the stinginess. Um, the, the danger is maybe we haven't fully believed the gospel. Maybe we haven't actually been wrecked by it and moved by it and brought to tears over it. And, um, and so we're clinging to stuff still because it identifies us and we have fear and anxiety over losing them. And we don't have this better reward than our earthly things, even the best of them. We don't have a better reward to say, well, at least I still have that. That's maybe kind of a weird way to think about it, but I think that's, that can still be helpful. Like, you know what? My, lawn, my lawnmower kicks it at my friend's yard. At least I still have eternal life. And it's kind of like a little bit of a difference there, but but you can you plug in anything on that first level. You know, it could be your marriage. It, it could be, your kids, it could be anything. Just plug it in. Put something big there. It's still true. That's the way we should think. That's the way they are thinking. That's the way the gospel can compel us to think with our brains about our possessions and to loosen the, the, the grip on them. The second thought probably uh, was something like this. I've been given so much undeservedly. So Jesus said in Luke 7, her sins and they are many have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love or To paraphrase, people who are forgiven much love much. So, people who understand the depth of their sin and how much Christ has forgiven that end up loving much. But if we've been forgiven little, in other words, if we don't feel like our sin is that big and it hasn't been passed over that much and Jesus hasn't shed that much blood because our sin's not that bad, then we love little. This is what Jesus teaches. Bigger your sin, the more you need to be forgiven. The more that's been passed over, the more that's been absorbed, the more it's been fought for you, then you'll love much because you'll be so moved by that forgiveness. But if it's small, then small will be your love. Small will be your life change. Small will be how much you're impacted by it. Small will be the way that you look to others as more important than yourselves. So people who are forgiven much love much. In the same way, though, people who are given to talk about generosity given much undeservedly usually give more and giving's a form of love the gospel shapes us it changes us and this is really another way to get at the first point of sheer joy forgiveness to joy to thinking of ourselves less to generosity towards other christians and just all people third thought here to flow from the gospel itself idea is I want to put Christ's generosity on display. So, quite simply here, the, the idea is Christian generosity is a picture of Jesus's. This is more the objective way. So, subjectively, the gospel can shape us internally by the Holy Spirit and give us those types of feelings we've been talking about here that sort of sort of compel and, and cause and, and flow out generosity. This is the objective view. This is saying the gospel's over here. It's outside of me. I want to make it famous and put it on display with my physical actions. And so... In 2 Corinthians 9 9, the Apostle Paul says, in the context of encouraging rich Christians to give to poor Christians, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And he's speaking metaphorically here. He's saying that Christ, who was rich because he was God, became poor by becoming human, and became even more poor by suffering on a cross and in that kind of impoverished state, died for us. In that way, we became spiritually wealthy. He dispensed the the goods of that salvific effort to us when, when we believed. So generosity is a spiritual gift intended to image what Jesus did for us on the cross. The, and this is what's so cool. We, we, um, we talk about this here a lot on any, on any subject matter because this is generosity today, but you could plug in almost anything. We, we, we have this here by God's grace. We want more of this. But what you've got in the first century is the 12 apostles standing up preaching the gospel about how generous God was to us on the cross when he didn't withhold his one and only son, but gave him up for us all, preaching the words of that, but then under that and flowing from that we have these kind of almost countless everyday experiences of Christians being generous with one another physically so that the church is hearing with their ears and seeing with their eyes the glories of God and the graces of Christ. Jesus did this a ton. The early church did this a ton ever since it's been happening or should be happening by the strength of the Spirit And through the prayers of the saints in the context of a church that's actually using their spiritual gifts to build up other Christians. We want it to be heard and seen. So if you've ever wrestled with, man, I can't see God. This is hard to pray when he's invisible and I feel distant from him. My six year old asked me that the other day. She just said, she's six. She said, Dad, it's really hard for me that I can't see God. Like, geez. Go talk to your mom. No, I'll let her deal with that. But um, that was like. That was really tough, you know. But what we talked about it. There's answers for that. So we talked a lot about it. But that's still a great question. But he, but here's the beauty: God actually is visible. He's visible in His people. So hearing is actually most important. Faith comes from hearing. Words are, are primary, but actions and deeds are a close second, and they image the invisible because the church is the body of Christ. This is not just a. a Fancy metaphor, it doesn't mean anything, it's a reality. So when the church is loving each other, working together, using spiritual gifts, one of which is generosity, we're hearing about God's generous love through his son, which is what saves us, but we're seeing it with our eyeballs, and we're, seeing, we're, we're sensing it tangibly with our bodies when we're seeing that kind of happen around us. That's the beauty of this stuff. It's a wonderful, biblical, at-the-heart-of-God balance between the spiritual and the physical. And that's what the church has the power to be, a place of proclamation and demonstration. And that is a few final words here on Acts 2, moving to this last piece. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Uh, And I I started this way, but here we're coming full circle. This passage is is a picture of the gospel. I'll say it this way. This passage is all about Jesus. And I, I just touched on some of it here. But it's all about Jesus. Even a passage that you might think is all about the church. It is about the church. But it's really about Jesus. His gospel's all over it. But before this passage is then a what to do, before it's a what to do passage, it's a what is true passage. Before this is a what to do passage, it's a what is true passage. And it's not hard to see with Acts 2's language that Before the church's birth happened, Jesus lived and died and, this is from Galatians 1-4, gave himself up for our sins. So here's what I mean. Here's the gospel through the lens and with the language of Acts 2, 42-47. So we're not just talking generally about God being generous now. We're using the language of Acts 2 to talk about what the gospel is, biblically, theologically, but also just in our lives right now in this very room. All right, so follow along on screen. Many wonders and signs were done through Jesus, the foremost of which was when he sold his glory, condescended himself, became common with us in our humanity, walked among us as a homeless man, gave up the possession of closeness with his heavenly Father, and emptied himself, effectively becoming impoverished for us on the cross as he literally gave away everything, All the way to his dying breath, breaking the bread of his body for us and then distributing the proceeds of that salvation to us needy sinners. To all who cried out for him in need of spiritual sustenance so that we might be together with him again. That's the gospel according to Acts 2, 42-47. It's not primarily about you guys. It's not primarily about us. It's primarily about Jesus who's the author of our salvation and the body behind which the church sort of takes on that body of Christ identity. All of this, and we saw it in Second Corinthians 9.9, 9, but here even more clearly, Jesus sold his body. He gave it away. He completely gave up all of his possessions, heavenly possessions, so that he might get close to us again. But before that, breaking the bread of his body, distributing the proceeds of that salvation to us needy, poor wretches and sinners to us who cried out for him in need of this spiritual eternal life and sustenance that he so freely gives to those who call out upon him. So the three things to take from this then is first believe this gospel, Christian or not. That's the point here. The, the gospels in this, before we even talk about church, this is the point. Christ's shadow is in this paragraph, this, these six verses everything heated for us on the cross is the substance behind which we have this section of scripture remember how this uh, this section ended as well was it say the lord did at the end the lord did what he multiplied the church right he added to their number day by day those who were being saved he multiplied the community he, he's the one who added to their number so that is again a gloriously passive i mean this is humbling but incredibly, so who are being saved? That's the passive voice of the verb there. So who are being saved? We're not saving ourselves. It's not saying God uh, opened the door for people who are saving themselves. It says those who are being saved implied God is doing that. But here's the good if you're a Christian, here's the good news you didn't save yourself, you, you were added to the number of the saints who pre existed spiritually before you. Like there's already the church, and God added you. You're like the 3,001st person, to use the language from this. You were added to the the church. You were added in. You were saved. You were brought in. You were pursued. If you're a Christian, that's what happened behind the curtain. That doesn't mean you have a real choice. It just means behind the curtain of your choice, this is what happened. Isn't that great? That's how much God loves you. If you're not a Christian yet, also be encouraged, because there's nothing you can do to save yourself. See, the center here is that we need a God to save us. We need a God to count us righteous or count us saved. He does that through his son who died for us. We need a God to add us to the number of his people, to choose us and love us and select us and bring us somewhere. And this is exactly, actually precisely what the gospel is. The Lord adds us into his family. We don't add ourselves because it's by grace we're saved, not by works. So believe the gospel, uh, see it and hear it play out in the church. Um, don't forfeit yourself the opportunity. This is what happens if you're a church-less Christian. You forfeit yourself countless opportunities to see the gospel play out every day. And it's damaging. I, I've seen that personally for me when I was a church-less Christian. I've seen it in countless lives of people who have left the church and who think they don't need it. They just need Jesus and their Bible and themselves. And it's like, that's... An overly simplified, harmful, unbiblical, not at the heart of God view um, that ends up leading them away from Christ. Because, so see it. This is the objective thing. When we're in the church and we see love and generosity happen, we're seeing an instance and a glimpse of what God has done for us. That they are that connected, you guys. That's not just a, oh, that's so cute and neat how they line up. It's not just a metaphor. It's a deep-seated spiritual reality. Good things happen in the church because God causes them to happen so that you might see a glimpse of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. That there's, there's a direct causation behind, behind them. Not just a correlation there, but a causation behind why good things and love, enemy love and generosity happens in a church. And then third, devote yourself to this kind of gospel-centered generosity and togetherness so that you might be the instrument of visualizing the gospel to another brother or sister. Um, Guys, if you call this church home, let's just celebrate and thank God for all the good that's happening here because there really is a ton of spirit-directed goodness in this area. He's been so good to us. But I I think we can also let this be a mirror, let it confront us a bit and say, are we devoting ourselves to these things or not? And and if not, how can we work harder at this to give God glory And, and to let the fact that Jesus died in that manner he died on the cross. He gave everything for us. And to allow that then, if you're seeing anything at all in this passage today, it's, I, I hope you're seeing that this was not a command so much that, that, that the church kept. It was them being completely wrecked, moved, brought to tears, brought to their knees, brought to a place of saying, thank you, God. And then out of that, out of that gospel, they were just loosening their grip on their stuff and themselves. And they, they were wanting to love their enemies because they knew they were a worse enemy to God than their earthly enemies are to them. And yet God still looked over that and died and shed blood for them. They were wrecked and moved by that. And so the only way to change, the only way to change is to be relentless in your focus on the gospel. This is a gospel-centered ethic, we call it, or a, the, a gospel-centered way of living and thinking that is the only thing that will produce good works in you. It will not come from command. It will not come from the law. It will not come from trying harder. It will not circumvent Jesus. It's only, only, only through him, through him, that uh, life change is possible and that goodness in the church can exist. So let's close with that and, and uh, with a song of, of worship and praise to our Savior. In Christ, uh, God, thank you so much for this passage that in Christ, Father, uh, we have provision. We have the proceeds of salvation spilled out for us. We have newness of life. We have a God who didn't come into the world to say so much, live this way, but watch me die for you. And eat bread and drink wine to commemorate that continually. So it's constantly about the bloody cross, constantly about the bloody cross, constantly about the sacrifice of God uh, and not about what we can give you. Forgive us our sin, uh, make us new, cleanse us from all evil, um, and help us to respond, God, enjoy in joy and thanksgiving. Uh, allow our church um, to even dial up the joy even more. It's a lot of laughter, praise God, in this church, a lot of food, a lot of thankfulness, a lot of worship, a lot of not taking ourselves too seriously. That only comes from the gospel. So, so we pray you dial that up, turn that up by your, by your grace, and uh, continue to form us into your son's image. In Christ we pray, amen.